Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with A.J. Bame about his book, Dewey Defeats Truman. A.J. is the author of seven books, including several bestsellers. He is also a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. A.J. Bame, welcome to That Said. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Michael. So we're going to discuss today Dewey Defeats Truman the 1948 election, and the battle for America's soul. A a great book. And before we dive into it, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get started as a writer of books and what your background is? You bet. Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey, and um, uh, I'm one of those rare people that starting at age seven years old knew exactly what I wanted to do. I remember I wrote a book in my first grade, and my teacher said to me, AJ, you're going to grow up to be an author. And I said, no, I don't want to be an author. I want to write books because <laughs> I was seven and I didn't know what an author was. But uh, I'm one of those rare, lucky people who's just had this sort of singular goal. I grew up with a, a father who kept portraits of Harry S. Truman on his wall at his office and in, in our house. And uh, so it's been a labor of love to be writing about Truman. And did you start out in journalism or did you start out straight away becoming an author? I was a Ph.D. student at uh, New York University studying the poetry of uh, Hart Crane and then also the art of writing biography under this professor named Kenneth Silverman, who'd won a Pulitzer Prize. And um, so uh, all my books have been sort of in this genre of biography, sort of sideways, usually not traditional biography, but. Yeah, I've always been in nonfiction and started out in magazine journalism and moved over. And that's what I've been doing for, geez, 25 years now. So, AJ, at this point, I normally ask, why did you decide to write this book? But instead, what I'd like to ask you to do is, if you wouldn't mind, read the first paragraph of the introduction of this book. And that sort of answers the question that I was going to otherwise ask. It sure does. All right. A groundswell of white nationalism. Impeachment headlines. A president caught in a bitter public feud with his own Congress. A resurgence of populism. A game-changing new form of media. A chief executive aiming fake news accusations at the national press. War and terrorism in the Middle East. A booming economy with historically low unemployment. The FBI on the trail of a major presidential candidate regarding a possible Russian conspiracy. The year was 1948. So it's just amazing, the parallels. And we'll talk about those parallels throughout the interview. But I want to say this, that your book prior to this was called The Accidental President. And you say that Truman was an obscure vice president with little formal education who really had not been part of the administration of FDR and was out of the loop on most major issues of the day when he ascends to the presidency 84 days after the death of FDR. So let's start with asking the question, who was Harry Truman? Harry Truman was born in Missouri and he was raised in a farming family. Both of his parents had come from families that had been slave owners and They considered themselves rebel Democrats. And when you hear the family, the Truman family, members of the Truman family talking about the term rebel Democrats, this is something they took very, very seriously. It was almost like a religion. And what it was was essentially during the Civil War, Truman's family had sided with the South 
And the Confederate states were this, the solid south of the Democratic Party in opposition to the GOP, the, the party of Lincoln in the north. And so uh, their passion for the Democratic Party was really born out of the scars of a lost war. And that was sort of the, the mentality that Truman as a child, that was the mentality his family that he grew up in. And um, there's a great misconception about Harry Truman that he was uh, largely uneducated, especially, you know, coming in the footsteps of FDR and the White House, FDR, who had been, you know, who'd gone to all the best schools. And uh, Truman uh, never graduated college. He had never been the mayor of a city, never the governor of a state. But um, he was extraordinarily well-educated. That, that began when he was a child. He had diphtheria. And as a child, he spent a year sort of paralyzed, and he would lie on the ground and just read. And uh, this passion for reading, this passion for history, and for learning about leaders of the past was remarkably useful when he came unexpectedly into the White House. And he, though, thought that he would be sort of a farmer, a stay on the farm, if you will, in Missouri. But World War One happens. And so tell us what happens. He goes off to war and what does he do when he returned? Well, Truman had been a farmer, an obscure farmer for many years. You know, I think he was already 30 years old when the war starts. So he's much older than everybody else. He enlists in the army. And mostly because of his age, he's uh, made a captain. He's made a leader of troops. And he goes over to uh, to Europe and he finds out this is where he learns. He had no idea. I mean, think about it. This is a man who was already 30 years old who had no idea that he had leadership qualities whatsoever. And he leads troops in uh, in combat. None of his men die. He comes back to America a new man. And he goes into the haberdashery business, yes? He does indeed. So it's a too strange to be true story. You know, if I'd written this as fiction, it would be impossible to believe. Uh, Truman comes back. He opens a haberdashery. And there's the wonderful picture of him with his business partner, a guy named Eddie Jacobson, who Truman affectionately called my Jewish friend. Uh, together, they open this business in Kansas City, selling, you know, hats and men's shirts and ties. And, OK, so this is to be his future. You know, now he's 32, he's 33, and he still has no political ambitions whatsoever. The downturn of the economy in 1920, 21 sinks his business. So now not only does he not have any political ambitions at age 32, 33, he doesn't even have a job and he's severely in debt and suddenly, unexpectedly, and I will say incredibly, his ascendancy begins. So it begins with a meeting with a guy named Pendergrast, right? Mike Pendergrast. That's right. So Truman had gotten in touch with the Pendergast family originally through meeting one of them in World War One, And he comes back and there's this guy named Tom Pendergast who runs the Kansas City Democratic machine. And what that was, what machine politics was, is you have a guy in charge, this big, larger than life man. He looked literally, Tom Pendergast, looked like he was toad-like. He had this very strange face and incredibly powerful. And he was sort of the local kingmaker. What he did, what machine politics was, is he goes out and says, you need help, I will help you. That It's that simple. You need a turkey on Christmas, I'll get you a turkey. You need your son to get a job, I'll find your son a job. And, it, you know, in response to that, all I ask you to do is vote for who I tell you to vote for. And so he becomes a local kingmaker in the Democratic machine in the state of Missouri. And it's through this relationship with Pendergast that Truman gets his start in politics. So ultimately, Truman 
He wins an election to become a local judge. And then it's uh, 1934, I believe. Uh, Pendergast needs to find a Senate candidate. And he can't find one. But it's imperative that he be the guy who is the kingmaker, who sends the senator to Washington. And somebody suggests the name Truman, this local judge, who had been for most of his life a farmer. And as I said, never mayor of a city, never governor of state, no college degree. And Tom Pendergast says, you must be kidding me. He's like, nobody knows Truman. And then he, this is a quote as I remember it. Do you honestly think that we could elect Harry Truman to the United States Senate? Question mark. Because it seemed impossible to believe. But in fact, it happened. And he goes to the Senate in 34, remains, I guess, a relatively obscure senator, but runs again on his own in 40 and wins. That was one of my favorite chapters of the book, just because you see this trajectory of this man who in every election, every single election he involves himself in, is a tremendous underdog. And the 1940 election was huge. Nobody expected him to win, namely because by this time, Tom Bendergast was famous, and I think he was already in indictment. He went to prison. And uh, Truman was thought of as Pendergast's stooge. He was the senator from Pendergast. And nobody took him as seriously in Washington. And he's got no money. And he goes out in 1940, conducts this campaign. It was said at the time he had so little money. I don't really know this true, but people used to say that it was he had so little money that he would drive around Missouri asking, knocking on doors and asking for votes. And he had to sleep in his old Dodge car because he could not afford a hotel room. And uh Again, nobody expects him to win, but he is triumphant in 1940 and wins another six years. So here he is in 1940, and all of a sudden, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who is in his third going on fourth term and has his long-term vice president, Henry Wallace, there by his side, decides that he needs to jettison Wallace and find a new vice president. So tell us about that. Uh, but so Henry Wallace is the vice president, and people are very concerned about FDR's health. And the inner circle, FDR's inner circle, has no faith in Henry Wallace. He's too far to the left. He's thought of as this strange mystic. He says these incredible weird things, uh, and he just makes everybody nervous. And the idea of having Henry Wallace as president, they just thought it impossible, couldn't happen. Wallace actually did have quite a following among the far left at that time. He was thought of as a hero of liberal politics, but in the mainstream, uh, too far to the left wasn't going to do. So uh, coming up to the 1944 election, FDR's inner circle, they make this secret plan to jettison Wallace. Uh, they have this very dynamic, very dramatic meeting in the white house. You can picture the cigar smoldering and, uh, they come up with this idea to put Harry Truman in the spot, in the VP slot on the ticket. And the reason why is because there's all these other candidates who are far more qualified, far more nationally known and, and qualified, but all of them have uh, a major issue. Wallace is too far to the left. The guy who was probably most qualified was James Burns of South Carolina. But Burns um, was thought of as a little bit of a racist and would offend liberals and black voters in, the, in northern states. So they crossed his name off, and Truman's name just fell into the slot. And the reason really why was there was no large part of the electorate that didn't like Harry Truman. There was no large part of the electorate that he was going to offend. It didn't matter that nobody knew who he was, that he was so incredibly obscure. 
because FDR was really going to carry the ticket and that was it. So Truman's name, as it was said at the time, quote, just fell into the slot. So FDR was elected in November 44 and April 12, 45, a day that if you're old enough, everybody remembers exactly where they were. 82 days into the presidency, FDR drops dead of a, I think it was a cerebral hemorrhage. It was, yeah. And the political refrain was, good God, Truman will be president. That's exactly right. And in my book, The Accidental President, I spend, I think, 38 pages on the first 38 pages on one day, April 12th, 1945. What FDR was doing in his death, what Truman was doing on that day and how he found out he's now the vice president of the United States, that FDR died. He originally, uh, it's around five o'clock and he's in the office of Sam Rayburn, speaker of the house. And they're, the day is over and they're pouring cocktails. And uh, Truman liked to drink bourbon with a little branch water, as he called it. And he gets a phone call from the White House, summoning him to the White House. And he says, good God, something must be going on. And we see him sprinting through the Capitol building. He takes a car to the White House with no Secret Service protection. And there he gets there. And Eleanor Roosevelt is there. And she says, Harry, the president is dead. And Truman turns to the first lady and says, oh, my goodness, is there anything we can do for you? And Eleanor Roosevelt says, is there anything we can do for you? Because you are the one who is in trouble now. And Truman realizes he's now going to be the president of the United States and the most powerful man in the world. And what was interesting, of course, was because Truman was not at all involved in Roosevelt's first three terms and the decision-making around policy, and he was only there for 82 days before he becomes president, he really is not read into what's going on. He's not read into the war effort. He's not read into the economic issues. He really is coming in as a blank slate of knowledge in a way, right? That's absolutely right. And people, I think one of the questions I get asked the most, having written two books about Harry Truman and about this whole era is, what was FDR thinking? And, you know, sometimes I answer the question that this was the greatest mistake that he made during his presidency was not to involve Harry Truman in any of the decisions that needed to be made or really what was happening at all, because it was no secret in Washington that FDR was terribly ill. Uh, every morning in the White House, you know, the, the staff would see FDR's doctor go in with the blood pressure cuff. Um, it, it wasn't a secret that he he was dying. And so on April 12th, 1945, it happened. So Truman becomes president, and there was sort of a question about what type of president he would be, meaning would he follow Roosevelt's progressive policies or would he effectively kill the New Deal, given his background, descendant of the radical Democrats and of slave-holding families? And so what was the conventional thinking? What did people expect from Truman that was the great mystery. And firstly, one thing, let me add one thing to our previous question answer. I think it's really important to note at that point when Truman comes into the office, when we, we talk about the fact that FDR never educated him about what was going on in the world, it's incredible to think that when Harry Truman became president of the United States, he had no knowledge of the atomic bomb. Uh, and he, he first gets the tiniest little briefing on this project after he takes the oath 
and he's president. He doesn't really find out about it until the next day. What's so extraordinary about that is he becomes the man that within four months' time has to make the most controversial decision that any president has ever made to this day, and that is whether to drop that bomb. So now to answer your question, remind me what it was. Sorry. The conventional wisdom about how Truman would rule. The conventional wisdom of Harry Truman was that nobody knew which way he would go. They thought uh, the conservatives were very comfortable that Truman would be much more moderate and much more in the center uh, coming from a southern state, that he would be more conservative than FDR was, that he would kill a lot of the new ideology. A lot of the southern segregationist politicians, the white supremacists, were quite sure that Truman coming from Missouri, coming from where he did, that he would be less likely to court the black vote and to support civil rights policies. Because, of course, during FDR's presidency, we saw Black America switch historically from the Republican to the Democratic Party in droves. And so people thought that Truman essentially was going to be more conservative. But there was a great mystery about his politics because during the first four months in office, he was really focused on winning World War II, what to do with the bomb, negotiating with the Russians. So he didn't really reveal his guards with respect to domestic policy at all. So we'll turn to the bomb and we'll turn to his 21-point program for reconversion to a peacetime economy in a minute. But before we do, tell us who was Thomas Dewey? Excellent question. Thomas Dewey was uh, from a small town in uh, Michigan. And I guess the first important point to make about Dewey was that he was born the way that Truman was born into the Democratic Party, that it, this was almost a religion. Dewey was the same with the Republican Party. Uh, there was an announcement in the local newspaper when Dewey was born. I think his father owned the local newspaper. But uh, something to the effect Dewey was born the next day. A nine-pound Republican was born <laughs> in, uh, in, uh, you know, on this day. And so it's very important to establish early uh, Dewey's politics. Now, uh, during his lifetime, he was born during the era of Teddy Roosevelt. And his, his father was so passionate about Teddy Roosevelt's politics. And basically what those were were a very progressive vision of what the GOP should be. And that included spending money on social programs, supporting, uh, basically spending money, okay, and uh, big government. Now, during the 1920s, we saw a complete shift of the Republican Party, much more conservative, the party of Taft, the party of Coolidge. and uh, But the Deweys didn't feel that way. So uh, Tom Dewey was raised as a real progressive Republican. And in fact, his initials, Thomas E. Dewey, T-E-D, you know, his father had named him that because he wanted to name him Ted after Teddy Roosevelt. Dewey comes up and he becomes a lawyer and he becomes this uh, prosecutor in the Southern District of Manhattan. And it was really important to me in the book, Dewey Defeats Truman, to go deep on Dewey and who he was, because his life story is fascinating. And more importantly, it really uh, distills and illuminates this extraordinary moment in, in the post-war years of like the Republican Party and the identity crisis that it had and what it was going to do. But before we get there, it's, a, you know, people don't know who Tom Dewey was. And during the 1930s, he was thought of as this prosecutor who brought down the mob in New York and these extraordinary crime cases. He was a brilliant prosecutor. It was said that if he prosecuted God, Tom Dewey would win. And he became so popular and so well known as a prosecutor nationally 
uh, two movies were made based on his life with Humphrey Bogart playing the Dewey-esque uh, crime fighter. So he was already a very famous man before he went into politics. And he, though, really was groomed for leadership. That You write that he was, though short of stature, which is unusual for politicians, most politicians are very tall, he not, but he was considered a natural leader. He had a forcefulness about him that was electric and engaging. Yeah. I think electric and engaging is, are, are wonderful terms to use. He was really a brilliant man, legally trained, very quick mind, very decisive and very fair. And uh, he was not always well liked by the people who worked with and for him because he could be so forceful. And when he made up his mind, you had to get out of his way. And we saw that quite a bit in the courtroom before he becomes, the, you know, the governor of New York. So he wins 72 of the 73 cases that he prosecutes. He becomes this household name. And in 1938, he decides he's going to capitalize on this fame and success and run for governor. How'd that work out? Uh, he lost, but um, he made a national name for himself. And he really ingratiated himself with a lot of Republicans who could see in him a future star. And it's worth noting something funny that uh, when he declared his run for presidency that time, he was still so young that it was said that, and you know, the saying he threw his hat in the ring. It was said that Tom Dewey threw his diaper in the ring because <laughs> he was so youthful. So he loses the New York governor race. Then he runs in 1940, what you were just alluding to, he runs for president in the Republican primary, but loses to Wendell Wilkie, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's, believe me, I think it's uh, 19, it's 1940 that he becomes the governor of New York, right? And we have to check those dates. 42, he 42. becomes the governor. 40, he's in the Republican fight oh. for the presidential nomination. Right. And there's a critical moment here because he runs for governor twice and he runs for president twice. And during his campaigns, he runs these two real attack campaigns, vicious uh, campaigns, attacking his opponent, and he loses. And then he runs two other campaigns in which he's running on just very different kind of campaigns and offering these platitudes, running a much more FDR-esque campaign uh, in which he doesn't attack his opponent at all, but runs you know on theories of what America should be. And um, these two... Uh, elections, he wins. And so he thinks that this is sort of the strategy he should have going forward as he's gaining steam on the national stage. So those platitude elections are his governor elections, his attack elections in 44 against FDR was still in the attack mode and he loses in 44 to Roosevelt, giving rise to Roosevelt's fourth term. And worth noting at that time in 1944 that he came far closer to beating FDR than Alf Landon did or Wendell Wilkie did. It was a much closer election. And so what's interesting to me is he's now tried to become the Republican candidate in 40 and doesn't succeed. He runs against Roosevelt as the Republican nominee in 44 and loses. And you'd think that his response would be, Nixon-esque, which is you're not going to have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore, that he was sort of done. But to the contrary, he decides to run against what he thought was a weak Truman in 48. 
That's correct. Now, in 1946, he runs for re-election for governor in New York, and he wins by the largest margin ever in the history of the state. So he's really continuing to gain power. And in the months after that election, the Republican Party, in fact, all of America is sure that Truman cannot win in 1948. And whoever the Republican Party puts up on their ticket is going to be the next president of the United States. And so there's a lot of inner workings among the party officials who that person is going to be. And one of the most fascinating parts of Dewey's character, I thought, was this one very dramatic scene where he meets with the Republican Party officials. And he says to them, he's like, I don't want to be remembered as the guy who's like life is scarred by losing a presidential election. And he had already run and lost. And so it takes some convincing to get him to run again. And I don't want to give away the ending, but he only decides to run again because he's sure he can win. And But today, what is he remembered for? He's remembered for really one thing. And that's why I wanted to go deep on his character in this book, not just because I think it's so important that people have a better understanding of the Republican Party in the post-war years and, and its identity crisis and what was going on at that time in our party system. But the whole idea that this man who is now today known only for one thing, for losing the election and for this you know, newspaper headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, was in fact an extraordinary man, a great man who accomplished tremendous things. And you mentioned that the conventional wisdom is whichever Republican runs will beat Truman because Truman is so unpopular. And we'll talk about in a minute the years 45 to 48, Truman's first three years in office and see what he was facing. But just in the capsule, tell us who was Robert Taft, Douglas MacArthur, and Harold Stassen, because those were the three other names that were being batted around. Those are the three other names that were under consideration for the Republican nomination for president in 48. Absolutely. So I think uh, there's two of those candidates I think I would focus on, and that's Taft. Taft was thought of, I have his uh, his biography right here on my on my desk. He was thought of as Mr. Republican. He was the son of a previous Republican president and the leader of the conservative faction on Capitol Hill. So his politics were pretty conservative. He believed in small government. He did not believe in government spending. He thought the federal government's role should be small, that decisions should be left to the states. And he was extraordinarily powerful. And he had inklings that maybe he would run during the convention, during the lead up to it. There was a lot of talk that Taft would have been the great candidate. And the other guy is Stassen, though. Stassen, to me, was fascinating. He was a young war hero, young guy. I think he was the youngest governor ever of the state of Minnesota. And Stassen is the one who unexpectedly surges late during the primaries. And Dewey's thought of as the guy who's going to be the candidate in 48. But suddenly, late in the primary season, they're running head to head, Stassen and Dewey. And what happens is they decide to have a debate in the state of Oregon, uh, where I spend a bunch of time. And so they come together on a radio station. And this is the first ever live broadcast of a presidential debate. Dewey versus Stassen. And the thought of whoever wins this debate is going to win the nomination. So there was extraordinary pressure on both candidates. And the debate was one of one question, one question. Each got to pick a side. Should the Communist Party be outlawed in America? Dewey said no. Stassen said yes. And Stassen gets in there. The broadcast begins. And Dewey is this amazing, seasoned, 
think on your feet prosecutor legal mind and it just kicks Dawson's butt and that's how the nomination sort of comes into play. All right. So we're going to get to the campaign in a minute, but I want the listeners to understand because you started off this conversation by reading about the times that 1945-48 presented and Let's talk a little bit about them. The first one is, and you alluded to it, is Truman's got to decide whether to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So tell us a little bit about that decision-making process and why he decided to drop it. Well, I go deep into it in my book, The Accidental President, just the, the sort of the communications and the meetings. And there's so much dialogue that's real that we have. So, you know, my goal was to really put the reader in the room when Truman is making these decisions, the memorandums, we have them. We know what he was thinking. We know what he was reading. We know what the people around him were saying. And ultimately he's at Potsdam meeting with Joe Stalin and Churchill, trying to sort of map out the future of the world at the end of World War II, when the final decision is made. And I think it's a misconception that he struggled with this and that it was a a very Difficult decision to make at the time. I don't think it was because the science was there. Churchill, all the leaders were who knew about the bomb were behind him using this weapon. He knew it was going to end the war. That was the idea because we were planning a ground invasion of Japan. The estimates of uh, the number of Americans who would be killed were extreme. And we know those numbers because we have the memorandums that were given to Truman by, you know, George Marshall saying this is the number of people we think are going to be sent in. This is the number of people, Americans, who we think are going to die. And so it wasn't a tremendously controversial decision at the time it was made. It's only after that we look back. And, you know, certainly it's not a very popular decision in Japan. But I can tell you this. I've met many, many people who have come to me having read The Accidental President who said, my father or my grandfather was scheduled to be one of the people invading Japan. And there's a good chance that if that invasion happened, I would not be here today. And that's a very moving argument. And so ultimately, yes, Truman dropped the the bomb and it it serves its purpose. It ends the war. But uh, what nobody was really thinking at that time was the extraordinary amounts of problems that would beset the human race in the United States of America following the end of the war. Right. So let's talk about that. So Truman, the war is over. And Europe and Asia are in devastation politically, geographically, infrastructure. There's a huge refugee crisis, so many displaced people. And Truman decides to embark on a plan, and I guess it was first envisioned by Secretary of State George Marshall, which was the Marshall Plan or the Truman Doctrine. So... Let's talk about that. Okay, very dramatic decision. Basically, you have the situation where the Cold War begins very shortly after the end of World War II and the nuclear arms race. The Soviets didn't have their bomb, but they were working hard on on building their first bomb. So the Cold War had begun. It was very clear. You know, the Soviets were our allies during World War II, but within days of the end, they were no longer our allies. And it became increasingly clear that there's this Cold War that was going to turn into real war, another global war with the Soviets. We can talk a little bit about how it began. It really began with a disagreement over the the government of Poland. Soviets thought they should be in charge of uh, Poland. And the United States said, that's not what we agreed upon. Poland should have democratic free elections. And that's one of the things that the present crisis in Ukraine 
is sort of like points back to that. This is how the original Cold War began over the uh, argument of who should be in control of one of the Eastern European governments. But anyway, it's clear that we're in competition with the Soviets. And uh, there's this moment where the British, who are propping up the governments of Greece and Turkey with money, the British are now bankrupt. And the British inform the United States government that they're no longer going to be able to financially prop up these democratic governments in Greece and Turkey and that they're going to fall, and it's clear that they're going to become Sovietized. And there's this sort of domino theory thinking that if Greece and Turkey fall to the Soviets, that other countries will follow in the wake. And so Truman and the people around him, what they basically did, what Clark Clifford, Truman's right-hand man, said at the time is, we saved, literally saved the world. And what they did was they came up with this plan to use American money to prop up Greece and Turkey. But philosophically, this was a radical new thinking of American foreign policy. And the thinking was, this is what the Truman Doctrine was, is that wherever in the world we face a situation of national security, if one country could be conquered by uh, you know another country, that presents a threat to us. And so there's this new ideology that if there's a country that was going to become Sovietized, that we would come and support them not necessarily militarily, but other ways, in an effort to stop the spread of communism. It's sort of the beginning of NATO, in a way. I would say that's true. But the Marshall Plan, which was perhaps the most controversial, was that with Europe in this devastated state, Truman decides that he is going to provide financial aid so that they could fight hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos as the means to resist Soviet expansionism. So they decided they were going to rebuild Europe, the countries, many of which we were enemies of during the war, in order to do a good humanitarian deal for them, but also to resist Soviet expansionism. So it's not just Turkey and Greece, but the Marshall Plan is all of Europe, yeah? Yes, the Marshall Plan basically takes the Truman Doctrine and puts it on steroids. And what this was, was this idea, and people should understand just how radical this thinking was at the time and just how difficult it was to sell to the American people and how dangerous of a policy it was because we didn't know if it was going to work. We had no idea if it was going to work. Truman once said that um, it's going to take 50 years for people to decide if I was a good president. And one of the reasons why is because some of the programs and the decisions that he made during his administration were so complicated that it was going to take generations before we knew if if they were good decisions. And the Marshall Plan, I think, is the key example of that. What it was is this ideology where we were going to take millions and millions and millions and millions of American taxpayer dollars and hand it away to foreign governments uh, and expect nothing in return, only in so much as that after the war they could rebuild their own infrastructures. People should understand that in places like Italy, in places like France and Germany, there were no bridges, there were no bombs, there was no commerce. The the continent was completely destroyed, and it was going to take years and years and years before these governments and these infrastructures could come back to anywhere near where they were before and into the modern era. And people should understand, this is what Truman had to explain to people, that the reason why we want to give millions and millions and millions of your tax dollars to foreign governments and ask nothing in return is because if we don't do that, these countries that have no infrastructure, that have unstable governments and hunger, poverty, pestilence, 
that these countries were going to become easy prey to communism in the future. And Ohio Senator Taft was against it. So he had a fight on his hands in the Senate. He had a fight on his hands in the Senate, and many, many people were against it. So was Henry Wallace. The people thought that this is this was American imperialism. They thought it was morally wrong. There were numerous people who thought it was going to be a disaster. And um, in Dewey Defeats Truman, the, I write about a couple of these extraordinarily dramatic meetings that Truman and George Marshall have with uh, Republican leaders, because he, we, we should also remember this was a dangerous time in the American economy. Inflation was going through the roof. A lot of Americans were sure we were headed for another depression. So the idea that we were going to shock our economy by giving all this money away, it, it was scary to a lot of people. And Truman has this meeting in the White House where he brings in uh, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, who's the head of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee and is a conservative Republican. And he tries to convince him. And he's got his young lawyer, whippersnapper lawyer, Clark Clifford there. And they're trying to convince Vandenberg to support this plan. And incredibly, such a dramatic scene, they succeed. And Vandenberg says, if you go out and say this to the American people, we'll support you. And imagine that. Imagine that happening today. Imagine Biden going out and saying, uh, you know, we, we have this a, a radical foreign policy program that we're going to put into place and spend all of this taxpayer money and give it away that you, there would be any way or a, anybody in the GOP who would stand up and say, we support you, President Biden. That's never going to happen today. Right. So we have Europe and Asia in disarray. We have had the atomic bomb dropped in the beginning of the Cold War and Soviets ignoring agreements made in Yalta and Potsdam. They invade uh, Czechoslovakia in 48, essentially, in, in that bloodless coup. We have Britain about to default, but that's just part of what Truman was facing because we're also now facing three other major issues, which I'd like you to just talk about. And then we're going to turn to the campaign. And those are the founding of the state of Israel, voting rights struggles in the South, and massive labor unrest. All of those things are on Truman's desk. Well, absolutely. I think an important point to make is that uh, Truman comes out uh, of World War II with an 87% approval rating. That's higher than FDR's had ever been. But his presidency quickly crumbles and confidence in him totally shatters. And the reason why is that it's my theory that there's nobody, nobody in the Oval Office could have really been successful in leading the country back to a peacetime economy and out of World War II successfully and remain a popular president because the problems confronting Truman were were beyond numerous and many of them impossible to solve uh, without great consequence. The founding of the state of Israel is one of them. We can go deep on that a little bit if you would like. Sure. Just we're going to run out of time. I could talk to you for three hours about this wonderful book of yours. Let's just in capsule form talk about the state of Israel, what was going on around voting rights in the South and then the state of uh, labor unrest. Okay. Those were three important issues that divided the country and were instrumental in Truman's political decision-making. Yes. Okay. So Israel, to begin with, there's a refugee crisis following the end of the Holocaust. You have millions and millions of Jews, hundreds of thousands to start with, going to Palestine, wanting to found their own country. They believed this would be morally just. 
And Truman was really faced with whether or not his voice more than any other in the world uh, was faced with the decision whether to support the Jews in founding the state of Israel or not. There were not a tremendous number of Jews in this country in the electorate, but they were very powerful and they were wealthy donors. Uh, at the same time, there was the moral question, should Truman support these people? And he believed that he should. So the problem became when he sat down with his State Department. I think most voters supported the State of Israel at that time. But his State Department said, there's no way we can do this. There's no way we should support the founding of the State of Israel because we have these relationships with these Arab tribes and we're going to have a war with Russia and we're dependent on oil from the Middle East. And without oil from the Middle East, you know, from these Arab tribes, we're going to lose a war with Russia and the Soviets, and that's going to be that. And the other thing they're saying is there's no way that the state of Israel can be founded and can continue to exist without American military assistance. And Americans were not going to support sending more troops right at the end of the World War II and get ourselves involved in another war. So Truman is facing the staunch, very visceral opposition of his own State Department, and that being George Marshall, somebody he respected more than anybody else in Washington, and he has to make this decision. And ultimately, he decides to become the first leader to support the founding of Israel, world leader. Uh, controversial decision, but I think it pays off in the end. Right. Um, so, so the United States is the first country to recognize Israel when it declares its its independence. Exactly. So now voting rights in the South, what was going on there? And we touched on this for the listening audience uh, you should listen to our interview um, with AJ on white lies, but talk a little bit about voting rights in the South, because that dovetails a bit with Walter White and what was going on in the NAACP. Uh, Truman is faced uh, with deciding whether or not to support a civil rights plank for the Democratic Party. And an extraordinary complicated decision to make. And if I can simplify it, I can I can put it like this. For generations, there were numerous states in the South where it was illegal for black Americans to vote. Jim Crow was in play. The United States was not a very friendly place to African Americans. But we should also mention that African Americans had fought in the First World War and the Second World War, and they come back after the war demanding rights. We served our country. Same thing happened at the end of World War I. Come back in World War II, Black Americans saying we served our country, we deserve rights here. We fought for democracy abroad, and we should have it here. We should be allowed to vote. We should have equal education, which obviously they did not. Um, an important point to make was 1944. There was an important Supreme Court decision called Smith versus Allwright. And what that did was challenge the whole idea of disenfranchising black people in the South. So for generations in states like Louisiana and Mississippi and Georgia, black people were not allowed to vote. Uh, the Supreme Court found in 1944, and I quote, the United States is a constitutional democracy. It's our organic law grants to all citizens a right to participate in the choice of elected officials without restriction by any state because of race. This is an issue we're still dealing with today, amazingly. But Truman is faced with this decision. He can see that the black vote is going to be more and more important in the future. But he also knows that if he supports a civil rights plank, he's going to deeply offend this solid South of the Democratic Party, a hugely powerful base of his own party in these southern states, where it was really, you know, the South was a one-party system of the Democrats. So he knows if he supports civil rights, he's going to shatter his own party, which is, in fact, what exactly happens. He comes out 
He supports civil rights program, goes deep, goes big. He becomes uh, the first American president to address the NAACP, the first American president to campaign in the spiritual heart of black America in Harlem. And of course, in 1947, he desegregates the military by executive order. Extraordinarily difficult, controversial decisions to make with generational implications. Right. And then finally, and then we got to turn to the campaign, which is the heart of the book. But I wanted the audience to understand what it was that was on the table in this 1948 election. It was as pivotal an election, perhaps, as we've had in our country's history. Because at the same time that all these things that we've talked about is going on, there's also massive labor unrest. And you've got Taft again trying to limit the rights of workers to unionize, to organize, to strike in the passage. And they pass in the Republican-controlled Senate the Taft-Hartley Act. Yes. Okay. Taft-Hartley, very, very controversial and bitter, bitter debate right after World War II. The Republicans supported it. And what Taft-Hartley essentially said was it limited, as you say, workers' ability to unionize and strike. And people should understand that there was this massive labor crisis coming in of World War II. It was imperative that we not fall into another depression, uh, which people thought was imminent. And we had a lot of labor strikes going on that were crippling our factories as they were trying to transform from these war factories, these factories that built tanks and airplanes, back to factories that built cars and refrigerators and uh, now televisions. Um, this was the most complicated, you know, convulsion the American economy had seen with the exception of the beginning of the war. And so to have these giant labor strikes was uh, was crippling the country from returning to peacetime economy. The stakes were very high. And so the, the GOP came up with this thing called the Taft-Hartley Act, and they basically put more power in the hands of corporations to limit what their workers could do. Truman was viciously against the Taft-Hartley Act. And this really became central to his 1948 campaign. He thought Taft-Hartley enabled, they thought it was going to empower Wall Street and that he could sum up his entire 1948 campaign in a sentence that I will read to you right now. The campaign was built on one issue, the interests of the people as represented by the Democrats against the special interests as represented by the Republicans and the record of the 80th Congress. I staked the race for the presidency on that one issue. And what he was saying was Taft-Hartley and the GOP, the conservative coalition on Capitol Hill, was going to hand too much power to Wall Street and take it away from the common man. He called them radical Republicans or words to the far right wing of the Republican Party to beholden to Wall Street. So we've set the table. And in 46... The midterm elections, with all these issues on the table, Truman is widely unpopular. As you said, he went from 80-plus percent popularity to to down in the 30s, two years into his presidency. In the midterm elections, the chairman of the DNC, Democratic National Committee, says to Truman, the less the voters see of you, the better. And shade of Biden, if you will. And, of course, in 46... The Republicans take both houses in landslide elections, which get us John Kennedy on the one hand, but Richard Nixon and Joe McCarthy in their first terms as well. So 
with all of this, Truman decides he's going to run for president. And so tell us about the campaign. What was it that he was going to try to do? How was it that he was going to try to overcome this huge unpopularity and form a coalition that could elect him? Truman was thought of as the greatest emblem of the common man, right? He gave this speech at one point in the White House, and people thought of him as a really poor public speaker. He was no FDR. Uh, and there was this one speech one night where he was just speaking to a newspaper organization. And after his speech, he just started to talk. And we have all sorts of accounts of that night. And basically what people are sitting in the audience thought of was, why doesn't he talk like that when he talks to the American people? Instead of being the president, why doesn't he just be Harry? And the people around him begin to catch on to this. And they come up with this plan to put him on a train and send him to small towns all over the country, the so-called whistle-stop tours, something that never happened. If he could sort of expose the magic of the presidency to the people, but also the real Harry, not just the president, but Harry. If he could identify with people on that level, they would vote for him. And so they came up with this plan to put him on a train and send him all over the country for weeks at a time, making six, seven, eight, nine speeches a day, many of them extemporaneous, that this would, was going to be their plan. And Truman was going to go. It was very much a populist campaign as well. They were going to go around and blackguard the 80th Congress, the do-nothing Congress. Uh, and so that's what they did. And in, in doing it defeats Truman, I really try to bring, because there's so much documentation of what it was like, bring life on that campaign trail, you know, to life in these pages and make the reader feel like he or she is on that train. You get to know the reporters on the train. You get to know the first lady very well. You get to know Margaret Truman very well. As this train is going to, from stop to stop, at times you'd see Harry Truman in, in a bathrobe in the rain, standing on the back, speaking to people. And um, all kinds of things went terribly, terribly wrong, but all kinds of things went terribly right. And you see this great narrative arc, this character who is a terrible underdog, suddenly making this comeback. And I think that critical to this, as you write, was his optimism. That is, all of the pundits say Truman's got no chance of winning. And Truman says, I think I can win. And he remains steadfast in that belief. And on these whistle stops where he's going small town to small town, people have never even seen the president of the United States. He exudes optimism and a vision of America that begins to resonate. Absolutely. Let's be clear here. We're talking about the greatest election upset in American history. Some people would say that 2016 was a bigger, I don't think so because I saw that one coming. But anyway, we're talking about the greatest election upset in American history. Uh, it was common knowledge aboard the Truman train that not even the first lady thought that Harry Truman had any shot of winning this election. At one point, they roll into this town uh, and they had been awaiting this article that was going to come out in Newsweek magazine where they pulled 50 of the top uh, political thinkers in the country as to who would win. And they pull into this uh, this stop and Clark Clifford Truman's right-hand man gets off the train and he goes and gets the Newsweek magazine. And when he brings it, he tries to hide it under his coat, but Truman sees him. And Newsweek, 50 out of 50 people predicted Dewey was going to win. All the pollsters believed that Dewey was going to win. And in fact, one of the major pollsters said early on in the campaign, I'm not even going to poll anymore. There's no point. It's a waste of time and money. 
Tom Dewey is the next president of the United States. But there he is out on the train in his pajamas. And uh, there's a quote that you have here from one of these whistle stop speeches where he says, apropos of what you read to us, election day this year, your choice will not merely be between political parties. You will be choosing a way of life for years to come. This is a faithful election. On it will depend your standard of living and economic independence of your communities. So warning of the extreme right and Republican Party that were puppets, as he called them, of big business. So there he is with this message in his pajamas, drinking his whiskey and playing poker, uh, which is, as you say, on the train, you get this notion of he's in the Ferdinand Magellan, this armored car, the last car of the train. And they're drinking whiskey and playing poker and going from small town to small town. And Truman would pop out the back and give his little speech and move on. Trump-like in some respects. In respects, that's correct. I agree. That the pundits didn't see what was happening. The groundswell that Trump was creating as he crisscrossed America. Uh, similarly with Truman, they just didn't catch on that his message was resonating. So while this is going on, What's going on with Dewey? So the atmosphere uh, aboard Dewey's train, again, I try to put the reader right on that train. It's very different. Uh, They drank gin on Dewey's train, not whiskey. They played bridge, not poker. And Dewey had come up with this idea that he had the presidency won as long as he doesn't make any big mistakes. And he had this idea that in the past that he had uh, conducted two real attack campaigns and had lost and had won two of these sort of platitude campaigns, these high-minded poetic speeches, and had won. So that's what he intends to do here, because he thinks he's got it won if he just can just go around the country, and his people come up with this idea called unity. He goes around the country, and he gives these poetic speeches about unity. And he doesn't really commit himself to any causes, because he thinks he doesn't want to make too many promises to people when he gets in the White House. So basically, he gives these beautiful speeches. They're beautifully written. He had trained as a singer, so he had this wonderful baritone voice. And uh, on the Dewey train, there were people who came and collected your laundry, and then it came back clean the next day. That didn't happen on the, on the Truman train. There was plenty of money, at least at the beginning of the Dewey campaign. No money at all on the Truman train. So the juxtaposition, I thought, was really fascinating. To me. But the one thing that stuck out with Dewey's, he, at the beginning of his campaign, he's giving these speeches. He's criticized for being too perfect, which tells you a lot. They said that he was over choreographed. He would only come out at nine in the morning and he was dressed to the nines. And it was a very opulent exuding of confidence. As you say, he acted as if he was president already. And it seems in reading through the lines that people didn't like that that much, that there was a hubris or something that people began to react against. Is that right? I think that's right. But nobody noticed at the time. That's what's so fascinating. Um, When you see Truman's campaign building and there's so many accounts, we have all the oral histories of everybody aboard that train. And the one thing that's really moving is when they start saying, you couldn't believe the crowds that would show up to see Harry Truman. They would roll into a town 
desperate for money. They'd all jump off the train and people would be on the phone calling donors, trying to get more money. But the crowds, they were bigger and bigger and bigger. Truman's in Cleveland gives this historic speech, massive overflowing crowd in Boston. So you see this amazing groundswell, but the press didn't see it. Somehow they missed it. Truman didn't. Well, and what he's doing here, pursuant to the campaign strategy, I guess it was the Roe Clifford memo emphasizing how they would win, was they were building this new coalition of farmers, laborers, as they called them, workers, Jewish voters, and African-American voters. And they were going to cobble together this new coalition. But what's so interesting about it, because labor and Jewish voters and black voters have stayed as a block for the Democrats, they went after the farmers and sort of like the farm labor efforts that we saw in in Minnesota and and elsewhere. Yeah. Or Wisconsin, I guess it was. Lafayette. I think you're right. And I think that's extremely important. The farmers of America traditionally voted for the Republican Party, right? Truman went after these people hard. And there was a couple of reasons why. One was they knew, you know, the Democrats knew Truman was going to connect with farmers because he was one. Uh, For much of his life, he had been a farmer. And at one point, uh, he's in Iowa, and there's this publicity stunt where he he plows a field in his suit and tie in front of the cameras because he knew how to do it. But there's something very important that he says at the Democratic National Convention in 1948. He says, farmers in America have never been richer. Farmers in America have never been doing better. And this has happened over four Democratic uh, administrations. That's what the farmers have been seeing. So if the farmers vote for the GOP, it's a stab in the back to America because the Democratic Party has really done well by the farmers in America. And he was right. And ultimately, this uh, this move, this courting of farmers in America plays out huge in the end. So we've got the opulent Dewey drinking martinis and um, playing bridge. We've got the working class whiskey poker playing Truman. They're both crisscrossing the country, Truman being bold and uh, visionary in some sense, and Dewey playing it safe not to make any mistakes, talking about the new unity for all of America, which no one ever understood exactly what that meant because there was not a possibility of unity. But this is not just these two guys running for president. There are two other candidates that in the beginning were substantial candidates. So tell us a little bit about Henry Wallace campaign for president and the Strom Thurmond campaign for president. Excellent. Um, There's four candidates in 1948, and I really wanted to go deep on all of them, not just Truman. Truman ultimately becomes the main character in the book for obvious reasons. But there were two other very important candidates. And in the end, they, they didn't fare very well. But I think that we can learn a tremendous amount about what was happening in America at that time by taking a closer look at their campaigns. One is Henry Wallace. So Henry Wallace was uh, the vice president who gets shoved off the ticket so Truman could get on there in 1944. And Wallace attends these incredible meetings in 1946 in the White House with Truman. And in one of them, they watch footage of an atomic bomb uh, test. And Wallace says aloud, one of these days we're going to see these bombs blooming like chrysanthemums over Washington, D.C., Wallace had this idea that Truman with the Marshall Plan uh, and the way that Truman was handling our relationship with the Soviet Union, that Truman was leading us into World War III and that Henry Wallace was going to be 
the candidate of peace and he was going to save the world from Truman and everybody else. And um, he was very far to the left. He was supported by the Communist Party of, of the USA, which was important at that time. And um, he ended up not winning any states, but he did. He was extraordinarily popular in certain parts of America. And that says a lot about our country at that time. Right. He was, in some sense, the Eugene McCarthy peace candidate uh, who thought that we really shouldn't be doing the Marshall Plan on our own. We should be working through the U.N., that we needed to work with Russia, uh, share atomic bomb technology so we wouldn't be competitive. And the New York intelligentsia uh, really uh, latched onto him. Everybody who was anybody on the left was a Henry Wallace candidate plan. I think you're right. And the, the most important thing to me in terms of like what it says about our country today, when we look back at the Wallace campaign, is how we see this in Trump and we see this in Joe Biden, um, how divided our country was. Because Henry Wallace was very far to the left, supported by the Communist Party. He could pack Yankee Stadium. He could go to L.A. and pack a stadium. He could go to Chicago and pack a stadium. But at one point, he uh, goes campaigning through the South. And he has an interracial staff. He says he will not stay in any hotel in which members, black members of the staff are not allowed to stay, which meant none of them, which meant he had to stay in the homes of people he could find. Uh, and he knew before he got there, his politics were so controversial that there was the potential for violence was there. And people were stabbed. He would get hit with tomatoes and eggs while he was speaking in places like South Carolina and North Carolina. And we see that divide in America today between liberals. You know, you're not going to see, uh, you know, whatever Donald Trump, you know, campaign in, in certain places and do well because he can be so amazingly popular in certain places and so amazingly unpopular in others. And that was Wallace for sure. But at the same time that was going on, you had this candidate on the left who they thought might be a spoiler for Truman. You had Strom Thurmond, who was also tugging at Democrat voter. So who was he and what was his message? Uh, Thurman, again, this, what I found so fascinating is the parallels we can make between Thurman and his base then and what we're seeing in America today. So uh, at the D Democratic National Convention in 1948, Harry Truman, you know, the, the Democrats come out with this plank that's big on civil rights and the southern states literally cause this protest and walk out. They're waving uh, Confederate flags and um, they form their own party. And we call them today the Dixiecrats. It was called the States' Rights Democrats. And they chose uh, young Strom Thurmond as their candidate. He was the governor of South Carolina. He'd been a war hero. And um, Thurmond, he really ran on one issue alone. He didn't talk about inflation, which was probably the biggest issue facing the common voter at that time. He didn't talk about Israel. Uh, he only talked about one thing, and that was white supremacy. And his goal was to court voters by saying, Let's keep it the way it is. The federal government should have no say in how we run things in our states. And in our states, we're going to preserve segregation and white supremacy. And that's the way it is. And remarkably, he won four uh, states just through that message. I read a moment ago the message that Truman said on his whistle stop about the importance of this election. Thurman at the Dixiecrat Convention, I'll read what he says. He says, I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that there are not enough troops in the army to force the Southern people to break down segregation and admit the Negro race into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes, into our churches. 
If the South should vote for Truman this year, we might as well petition the government for colonial status. I can think of nothing worse for the South than to tuck its tail in and vote for Truman. We're not going to do that. Absolutely. I read that quote all the time. And you can see that speech on YouTube. It's remarkable. But before we get to the final campaign, because we're running long in this interview, the thing that you talk about in the book, which is so unbelievable. So here we have Strom Thurmond talking about we'll never admit the Negro race into our world. Tell us, who is Essie May? So Essie May was uh, here, here you have this candidate running for president on white supremacist platform who secretly had a daughter who was half black that he had through a woman who was working for his home. So here he was saying, yay, white supremacy. But he had this big secret about an affair he had had with a black woman and had a child earlier in his life. And that amazingly, that secret really never came out. And for decades after that, uh, she wrote a really wonderful book about what her life was like experiencing the 1948 election. Because by that time, she was older and old enough to see her father, whom she had a relationship with. They spoke. They saw each other. He helped her with money. Her point of view is really fascinating. I encourage people to read her book. So how did the two major candidates, because Wallace and Thurman are really fringe candidates by the end, how do the campaigns calculate what it'll take to win on the Electoral College map? What's their thinking around that. Dewey's thinking is that we're going to just going to win and it's going to be easy. And in so much that he even informally and off the record told the press who was going to be in his cabinet. He, told, he was so sure that the Electoral College was not even going to be an issue, wouldn't come into play. He was going to win, that he had already chosen a secretary of state, et cetera, et cetera. There's a very dramatic scene aboard the Truman train where Truman uh, and one of his assistants take out a pad and paper and a map of the United States and Truman, of course, knew how many electoral votes were in each state, and he added up, and he said, you know, everybody says I'm going to lose, but look at this electoral college. I'm going to win. Not only that, I'm going to win the popular vote. And, you know, we know how it turned out. Well, let's tell the listening audience how it did turn out. But I want to say one thing before you answer that question. The one thing that I didn't remember was that Dewey's vice presidential candidate was Earl Warren, soon to become the most progressive Supreme Court justice in American history. That's right. And a couple of things we can say about Earl Warren is one, it was a brilliant pick because Dewey thought, well, that will assure me the state of California. In fact, they were wrong about that. Because uh, he was the governor of he was California. The governor of California, but so popular in California that he had won uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans had voted him. Uh, in his governor. That's how popular he was in California at the time. The other important point, I think, to make about Earl Warren is when the election was over, Earl Warren was asked, you know, why didn't they consult you more? And he said, you know, I really don't know what they should have. Anyway, so the final tally. So these campaigns are, the trains are running in parallel and they come to the final resting place and it's election night. And tell us, tell us how it turns out. And why do you think it turned out that way? The final week leading up to the 1940, it's just this incredible moment in American history where you had each candidate, Truman and Dewey, hitting the same city one after the other. So Truman gets to Cleveland. Uh, Dewey's there the next night. Truman gets to Boston. Dewey's there the next night. And then they both have their climactic uh, speeches in um, New York City. And um, 
So then they both go to their separate ways. And one of the most moving, I think the most moving part of this book for me when I was writing it is the scene at the Hotel Roosevelt in Manhattan where you have Tom Dewey with his family and he's supposed to come down at nine o'clock and give his acceptance speech and give a speech and all the supporters are there ready uh, to hear the next president of the United States speak. Nine o'clock comes and he doesn't come downstairs. 10 o'clock comes, he doesn't come downstairs. Millions of Americans are watching election night on the television for the first time. And I encourage listeners to go. You can YouTube that, too. It's fascinating. Um, but it ends up with Tom Dewey alone in a room with a legal pad and a pen, just like writing down numbers and listening to the radio and, and thinking, oh, my God, I'm shocked. I'm going to lose this election. And he uses the term that son of a bitch. <laughs> I hope that's OK to say. Um, but at the same time. The Republican National Committee is sending out press releases saying the Republicans are going to win. They send these press releases at 9 p.m., at 10 p.m., at midnight. It's now assured Tom Dewey is the next president of the United States. So the National Committee, the Republicans, is saying, we won, we won. And Dewey is realizing we lost. And this is, a, and we have those press releases. So we know what happened. We have the language. And the final tally is Truman. 303 electoral votes, winning 28 states. Dewey, 189 electoral votes, winning 16 states. Strom Thurmond, as you said, wins Louisiana, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Alabama. Henry Wallace, nothing. And Truman does end up winning the popular vote. 24 million for Truman, 22 million for Dewey and the other two, Strom Thurmond and Henry Wallace, each get about a million votes with Thurmond getting a little bit more than Wallace, about 13,000 more. What I thought was interesting in the book is after the loss of the election and the the Democrats regain the House and the Senate, uh, so it was a landslide for the Democrats, what does Henry Calvert Lodge propose as a resolution? Do you remember that part of your book? Is that where he asked to get rid of the Electoral College? Exactly. Exactly. So uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, a senior Republican senator from Massachusetts, after this stunning election loss, decides that they've got to abolish the Electoral College, that this was just not an acceptable way to elect a president. So I've got two last questions for you. The first question is, What lessons, what overarching lessons can we learn from this campaign? And the second question is, what would America have looked like had Dewey won? The first question I can say is, I'll tell you, anybody listening today is go out and vote. Okay, just make sure you're registered. Make sure your vote is counted because there's all sorts of people forever have played Monday morning quarterback and said, well, what really happened? Truman believed that. Uh, big city labor came out for him, and that was what tipped the scales. Dewey believed that uh, he was abandoned by the farmers of America, and that's what tipped the scales. But we can never know for sure. It's my theory that there were a bunch of Republican voters who didn't turn out because, you know, something was on on the radio they were listening to, and they were so sure of what the outcome would be that they didn't cast their ballot. And so I'm just saying, get out there and vote. No matter what you think is going to happen, make sure your vote is counted. And the second answer to your second question is, Listen, Tom Dewey and Harry Truman agreed on a lot of things, a remarkable amount of things they agreed upon. That's why Harry Truman ran his 
campaign, not against Dewey, but against the 80th Congress. He ran against the conservative faction of Congress. I think that Dewey, frankly, would have made a great two-term president. I think he was a trustworthy individual. He would have been a good steward of our national security. I think for the most part, his domestic policies would have been admirable. He was ready to spend some money on things that mattered. He supported Taft-Hartley, I think, which was an issue. But I think he would have made a very fine president. It's a great book. Dewey Defeats Truman, the 1948 Election and the Battle for America's Soul. And what struck me, A.J., is when you read the book, how interesting it is on its own account, but how many parallels there are to the 1948 election and what we're going to see in 2022 midterms and 2024 presidential election. And you have some great insights for us to learn from reading this book. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. It was a great pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.